On the Virtual Bible Study tonight, we want to talk about various listener questions. Jacob, we love these kind of programs. we got uh, a number of questions that have been sent in by listeners. We've compiled them into a uh, an, an order. I've got my... And there we go. And uh, so we'll talk about them on the virtual Bible study tonight. Various listener questions. Yeah, we've got a bunch of interesting ones. They're kind of on diverse subjects, but lots of interesting questions that I think our listeners will be interested in hearing about. And also join us in answering. All right. We'll get to that right after this. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and this is the virtual bible study for thursday november 30th 2017 thank you for joining us on the program tonight my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you tonight and a little rusty on that start we had a yeah. week off last week and yeah. i don't you lost you forgot everything you knew we almost have to be retrained yeah well so i hope our listeners enjoy the break last week because they're not going to get another one lord willing for a long time uh, but uh, we're glad to be back with you tonight kyle's behind the controls kyle thank you for being here it's always good yeah, to be here been missing being with you as well kyle glad you're here and glad that you're on the other end of the line tonight and that uh, our bible study group is back together and we'll look forward to hearing from you tonight at 877-381-4567 questions at collegeview.com or if you're Listening to us live tonight, uh, sign in the chat room. I see Linda in the chat room, Sarah Dwight uh, from Ames, Iowa. We heard from him this week. And uh, Jeff from Livingston, Tennessee. And if you're in the chat room, sign in and uh, let's share your comments well, with the world tonight as we talk about various listener questions. A lot of interesting questions. So you're going to want to be signed into the chat room yeah, yeah, tonight so, so you can participate. Sit right there at your keyboard and plan to join in here on these questions that we think are, again, they're unrelated. They cover all different subjects, but all of them are, I think, really interesting. Someone told me just before I came that, that those are pretty interesting questions. I was talking to my mother-in-law in Florida, and she said she was interested in these questions. So yeah. uh, this is going to be a good discussion tonight. All right. So um, I don't guess we have any housekeeping to mention other than you can still get uh, bumper stickers. If you don't have one, send us a, an email. Give us your And in the email, give us your snail mail address, and we'll mail you a bumper sticker. Help us advertise the yeah, Virtual Bible right. Study. Uh, I, I'm just not a Facebook person, so I don't know all this Facebook business. But I think if you if you do do Facebook, we uh, are obviously we're streaming on Facebook live, uh, and they tell me if you like us or share our info with others, we might spread the word that way. All right, help us get the word out. And this is a better uh, study when more people are here. And uh, and uh, we have more interaction and more feedback from our listeners that uh, will uh, cause us to have programs like this where people send in questions. Some folks obviously disagree with us. Uh, some folks just want to know the answer. Uh, and I got a more good questions today. After I sent these out, someone sent more in. Ooh, good. So we've already started our next stack of stuff, so send us more yours, questions. You want to get yours in quick because yeah. that stack's going to fill up. Uh, we yeah. want to have another one of these programs soon. So we're not going to read these ahead of time. Just, some of them are rather lengthy. So we'll just start out with the very first one. This one comes from KB. I think KB is in Mississippi. And he asked a question about basically how did we get the Bible. He says, we know the scriptures are inspired by God. We know all of the writers of the Bible were followers of God. My question is, when the writers of the King James Version translated the scriptures from Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek, where did they get the scriptures from? Now, he he has specified the King James Version, but really whatever you would say about how the King James Version translators did their work, you would be saying the same thing about any true translation of the Bible. Obviously, translated into English, the Bible's been translated into hundreds of uh, multiple thousands of different uh, languages and dialects around the world. So the question is not so much about the King James Version as it is how do translators, what do they start with to make a translation? If you're translating. An accurate translation. Because some folks will start with some 
bogus text. Well, some people just basically are paraphrasing the Bible. Right. In fact, one of the one, amazingly, one of the popular aversion—it's not even a version—one of the popular readings that people do is from the Living Bible, uh, and and that's just a paraphrase. Someone read the English. Decided what they thought it meant and wrote wrote it back down in their own words. Not that's, trustworthy. Not, that's not a version. That's not a translation. No. But when we're talking about true translations, whether it's into English or into Russian or Chinese or Japanese or uh, whatever, what they do is they go back to documents in the original languages. And, and KB mentioned Hebrew and Greek. Of course, that's the principal languages of the Bible, Old Testament Hebrew New Testament Greek. There's just a just a spattering of Aramaic, uh, almost not even enough to mention. But when the translators go then to these original languages, what are they work What are they working with in order to translate into their given languages? I think that's the question that he is asking. The very simple answer to that question is is that there's incredible what we call manuscript evidence of both the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. Manuscripts are handwritten copies of the text. We don't have any of the originals. Uh, And I think that's worth noting right up front. We don't have, for instance, the book of Ephesians in Paul's own hand. We don't have that original document that was sent to the church at Ephesus from Paul. We don't have any of the, uh, those are actually called autograph copies. We don't have any of the autograph copies of, of the Bible text. Uh, why those weren't preserved, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't say why they weren't. It's not too hard to imagine that men might have sort of enshrined them, begin oh, to worship well, the, the actual yeah. things themselves. I mean, think of the things that the Catholic Church puts in as relics that uh, yeah. they worship. Yeah. Fingernails and hair and other things. So we don't know why God didn't see fit to preserve those, but I think um, maybe just a little speculation is, makes it kind of obvious. But what we have is just incredible numbers of handwritten copies. Obviously, they didn't have printing presses back then. And so if you wanted a copy, you made copies by hand. And there were scribes who devoted themselves totally to doing that. And they were just meticulous in their work, so much so that they would actually count how many letters were in a document. Then figure out what would be the middle, a whole, maybe the whole book of Isaiah. What's the middle letter in the whole book of Isaiah? Then they'd count to that and make sure that they had exactly the right number of characters, both before and after that middle point. Stuff like that. They were just meticulous in their work. And we don't just have a handful of those kind of handwritten copies. Man, you've got thousands, thousands of copies. It's the most well-documented book of antiquity. Uh, would be, I mean, by in factors, factors of a hundred. Yeah, it's amazing. Or thousands. It's amazing. The, the, uh, the, the, I think the next closest book uh, documented by handwritten copies or manuscripts is Homer's Iliad, and. It, I think there's only order of about 600 manuscript copies of that, whereas in the Bible we're talking about thousands, 5,000 plus. Yep. So I mean we're talking we're talking about um, there's no book of antiqu- antiquity that comes even close to these. And so what these translate in answer to KB's question, what these translators do is they go to these manuscripts, compilations of manuscripts, and they translate from them. They they look to see how the words were used in that time, and then they try to uh, translate into our words uh, the same meaning. All right. uh, it's a meticulous work. It's very carefully done. Teams uh, good good translations incorporate teams of scholars who know the a native language, the original languages perfectly well, and then translate into our language so that we can read and study. We ought to be very grateful for their work, actually. And uh, and their work has been proven to be very trustworthy. Uh, you think about it, you get 100 Greek scholars together and they're going to translate the Greek New Testament into English. They're, they're going to be looking over each other's shoulders, their scholarly expertise. Uh, they have some... They have some pride of workmanship. In other words, I'm not going to I'm not going to mess this up and try to sneak something into the text that's not there because I know you're going to be looking over my shoulder, and I don't want you to think I'm some kind of a phony scholar. I want to prove that I really know what I'm doing. So they're going to be very careful to translate just as accurately as they possibly can. Okay. But they're getting in answer to KV's questions. They're going back 
and going to those manuscript the the compilations of manuscripts that are available and using those to bring the 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 word of God into our language. All right, eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. KB, thank you for your question, and hopefully that helps uh, give you an answer. Kent says the translators of the New King of the King James Version use the manuscripts of the Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek texts that were extant at the time of their work in translation. Yeah, and and there, we're still discovering uh, additional manuscripts, uh, and sometimes these manuscripts, sometimes they're whole books of the Old Testament or New Testament. Sometimes they're just a fragment, maybe just a piece of a page of a handwritten copy. But when you put them all together, it's quite amazing how accurately they conveyed the text over time. One of the one of the incredible archaeological discoveries in the last century was the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and th- there were a there were a group of of uh, Jews uh, who were very reclusive uh, in and around the Dead Sea. They, uh, but they they were very committed to preserving the Old Testament scriptures, and so they had handwritten copies. Uh, that they stored in clay jars and put in caves along the bluffs of the Dead Sea. And those were discovered beginning, I think, in about 1947. But what, what was amazing is that these copies were about 900 years older than anything that any manuscripts that were available before that time. And so you got a period of almost a millennium there, almost a thousand-year period. And so people would have suspected, well... When we go back to those really old copies that we've discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's going to be a lot of differences between what we had as manuscripts and what these older ones, you know, there was almost zero difference whatsoever. And in almost a, a thousand years of transmittal, there were just slight differences, maybe a punctuation point or something, but almost exact, over a thousand, almost a thousand year period of time, almost an exact perfect conveyance of those handwritten copies from one generation to the next. All right, let's get a break. When we get back, we'll get Ryan's question. Ryan's got a question about instrumental music and instrumental worship. Uh, What's to know about using instruments in our personal worship, uh, individual worship? Is that uh, prohibited? Is it allowed? And and what kind of uh, ramifications does that uh, understanding have? We'll get to that on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study will continue right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The Virtual Bible Study will be back right after this. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN, it's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock, it's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 128. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. Here's some quotes worth pondering. You don't get much done by starting tomorrow. Learn by experience. Preferably the other guys. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. First John 3. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight, and uh, we're getting to listener questions that have been submitted, and we want yours in the stack for the next program. Send it to questions at collegeview.com, and you're not limited to one. We've got listeners here with multiple questions. We want to hear get, from you. We're going to get down to a couple here who have two different questions each, and, 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 and we'll deal with those. But the first one, come, the, the next one that we want to deal with comes from Ryan. 
who ask to what degree are instruments unauthorized? Now, what Ryan has Ryan has heard us talk about instrumental music before, and I th- actually think he probably agrees with us about the fact that instruments of music are not authorized in the worship of God. Right. And so he asked, but to what degree are instruments unauthorized? And I think he he takes a position, or, or maybe believes that we take a position that I, that I don't that I don't hold. He says, are they banned from assemblies only, or or are individual Christians prohibited from playing instruments because there's no authority to be found for them in the New Testament? From the things you were saying, I would assume you would label a church unscriptural because they never taught it was wrong to play the guitar as a Christian. It seems that it would be if Christians are to do everything in the name of the Lord and instruments are not authorized. But all of the elders of this particular congregation that he's, that he's referring to, they all of the elders played some musical instrument and even encouraged and one even encouraged his nephew as lead guitar in the high school band. Okay. All right. Um, so you want, you, you want me go to ahead, start? Go, go ahead. Appreciate Ryan for his question, and it is important that we have authority, as he's referenced there. We've got to do all in the name of the Lord. Uh, so we uh, we must make sure that we're doing that. Um, verse seventeen of Colossians three says, "And what's, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him." So that is an instruction not only for our corporate worship but our personal worship in our life everything we do says we must do in the name of the lord jesus now the reason that instruments are prohibited in worship in our collective worship is because they're not there has been explicit authority given to us for singing and singing only when something is specified that uh, that excludes other things there, back in Colossians chapter 2, we could look at that as well, where it says that we are to sing, and that's a, a reference to our collective worship. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think uh, maybe you had reference Colossians 3.16. Sorry, sorry, 3, yes, Colossians uh, 3.16. Uh, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So when the worship of God, when New Testament worship of God is under consideration, and I actually think that this is not just our corporate worship of God, but even our individual or private worship of God. Uh, uh, for instance, in James chapter 5, it says, verse 13, verse 13 mm-hmm. is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Is any merry, let him sing psalms. I might sing a psalm in praise to God when I'm all by myself. But but I would do that as an act of homage or worship to God. So I think in regards to what we do when we're together in worship, or even what I might do privately as an act of worship toward God, the New Testament specifies singing. So could you play a guitar in a church service and worship to God? No, because it's not authorized. That's an addition. That would be playing and singing, not just singing. And it's been specified how we're supposed to worship God. And so we say, well, we have authority to sing. We don't have more authority, authority to sing and pray. In our collective worship, in our personal worship, could I play a guitar and sing praises to God? I think no. Now, not everybody agrees on that conclusion, but I don't know how you get to a different conclusion. You have to use, if you use the same rules of, of determining Bible authority, you have to come to the same conclusion because we have a specific instruction here on how we're to worship as individuals yeah, yeah i think so so what we have said and uh, i believe this is correct uh, it's, it's my conviction that if it is if it is designed to be worshiped to god it should be done with acapella music that is vocal music singing only without instrumental accompaniment because that's what we read in the new testament we don't ever read about the the early Christians being taught we don't have uh, to to sing and play we don't have any example of the early Christians doing anything other than just singing and and I think there's about eight references to music in the New Testament it's always to vocal music singing on the part of of Christians worshiping God collectively and individually yeah now you can go to the book of Revelation read about angels and harps in heaven we're not angels we're not in heaven. What angels do in heaven doesn't authorize what we do as mortal human beings on earth. Uh, but that's why we that, that, now that's our position. So the guitar playing, if it was if it was guitar playing to accompany singing that was intended to honor worship, 
glorify God, I would say don't play the, don't play the guitar. Just sing. But having said that, the the, the step that that the question implies is that it would play a guitar uh, to sing Happy Birthday or or whatever. And, and I don't I don't know where I would go to the Bible to prove that. Right. God hasn't given us instruction on secular music and yeah. what we might do in, in our secular life or, or in our life that's not connected to worship to God. The in music, regards to music. It's according to music. He's not specified there, so we would have liberty in those areas. One of those liberties could be playing the guitar, uh, playing some other musical instrument. Uh, as long as it's not connected to worshiping God, because yeah. He specified what He wanted in that realm. Yeah, and that's the word you use, liberty, and, and, and it, everything has to be done generally, so that we don't violate God's law, that we're not sinning. But in areas where God has not specified, then we are at liberty. For instance, there's no place in the New Testament that tells me that I can eat my supper with a fork. I don't I don't have specific authority to eat with a fork but I can eat with a fork because God hasn't specified how to eat or what I you know there's certain he has specified things that would govern how you ate with that fork yeah uh, you would not be able to use a stolen fork or you couldn't uh, and I ought to eat with Thanksgiving with Thanksgiving those there's regulations yeah. on that but as far, but if he had specified you eat with Thanksgiving with a spoon then well you couldn't use a fork right uh, that, so there you go. So again, uh, I, I think maybe the question misunderstands something that we've said in the past, and that's very possible because we don't always say things well, that are, you know. uh, perfectly and clearly. Yeah. But we're not against musical instruments for musical instruments' sake. Uh, I like guitar playing. I wish I could play the guitar. I can't. Uh, but I would, if I could, I wouldn't play the guitar to accompany. Spiritual songs that are intended for the worship and glorification of God, either either collective in a collective assembly or in my private worship, I would not do that All right. because God has specified how He wants us to worship. Him. A couple things from the chat room. One of those areas where we didn't express ourselves clearly enough, and that was my uh, mistake. Ninety four fifty six says, "You divide your life into spiritual and secular." Secular? No, we don't. Uh, I was speaking about secular music worship that would, music that wouldn't be connected. In worship to God or praise yeah, to God, yeah, yeah. and so that, that, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, Twenty thirty one says, but I thought we needed authority for everything. Is it just church things? No, we started this discussion by saying we need authority for everything. Colossians three seventeen says, whatever you do, in order to do all. But what we don't have to have is specific authority right. for things. Some things are generally authorized, uh, uh, and so you know we're to, we're to eat our. How does how does Paul say that? And uh, just as an example, we're to eat our meat with. Let's see, I don't know if I can find this real quick or not, Jacob. Uh, uh, Paul spoke of some in First Timothy four who would speak lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Uh, so I, I'm, to, I'm authorized to eat. God has created these things for me to, in other words, those who would forbid me to eat are doing something that God doesn't want them to do. God has created food to be received with thanksgiving. Well, what kind of food? Uh, well, he didn't specify. So there's a general authority to eat food. Yeah. Uh, how do I eat my food? Do I eat it with my bare hands? Do I use a plate with a knife and a fork? Well, he hasn't specified. I am generally authorized to eat my meat with thanksgiving. Therefore, in other words, the, the, the question, I thought we had to have authority for everything, implies that we have to have specific authority for everything, and we don't. Some things are specified. When they're specified, we have no options. We do exactly what's specified. But in other areas, we have general authority, and we're at liberty to use what seems expedient. I tell you, sometimes when I'm eating fried chicken, it seems expedient to eat that with my hands, with my fingers. I don't like eating fried chicken with a knife and a fork. But if I'm eating a piece of steak, a knife and a fork seems pretty good. 
I'm at liberty to use my judgment in matters of expediency concerning things that are generally authorized. And so I think maybe the the the, the question in the chat room uh, says, well, don't we have to have authority for everything? We, yes, we do, but we don't have to have specific, and we don't have specific authority for everything. 2031 asks, how do we know we have authority to listen to secular music with instrumental music accompanying it? Uh, I just I I don't know that the Bible addresses that. Well, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't give any specific instructions regarding that that would prohibit. There's no moral instruction that would. Now, if I'm listening to really nasty songs with horrible lyrics uh, and things that would encourage me to think and do immoral deeds, and music has that power. Then, I, then there would be moral principles that would dictate that that would not be a kind of music I ought to listen to. Yeah. But uh, as as long as there's nothing immoral or improper, then I, where would we go to find it condemned? Yeah. I, I can't find it condemned, and and therefore it would be in the realm of personal liberty. Okay. All right. So we may need a bigger discussion here on uh, Bible authority and how to establish that in all areas of our life. Uh, but uh, certainly this is a good discussion. 2936 says, can you sing a song with an instrument that mentions God? For example, God bless America. Uh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that song, but I don't I, I don't think we should. In, in general, I try to avoid songs. Instrumental songs that are intended to worship or praise God. If that is one, um, I hadn't even really thought about that song. I don't know the last time I, I or I don't know that I last time I ever sang God bless America, but I I'm just saying if it's a song that is tended intended for worship and praise of God, then it should be not with musical accompaniment. Twenty thirty one says, I'm curious about a command, example, inference or principle that would authorize me to listen to music for recreational purposes. Okay, well, let us work on that. I, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. Well, and then 2031 says, okay, so we can move on. Sorry. No, don't. no reason to be sorry. These are good questions, and we need to have the discussion, obviously. Um, and so uh, maybe we table that one and come back. Yeah, maybe we can put that in our immediate stack for the next time. I don't know that I've ever, really ever asked myself, do I have authority to listen to instrumental music for recreational purposes? In other words, but can, it, can it, I listen to... Um, uh, I don't know the name of song. Uh, can can I listen? I may, find a clean one. That's a hard thing yeah, to do yeah. for contemporary yeah. songs. Contemporary songs are but, hard. But uh, you know maybe Beethoven. Or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, but again, it gets back to this general specific thing. And if God hasn't specified, then we're at liberty uh, to engage in that activity. If He hadn't specified something. Uh, that, that's exclusive. For instance, He's ex- we have an exclusive specification for singing and worship to him, and that's to sing psalms, uh, vocal, no uh, musical accompaniment. He's not specified anything about uh, songs that aren't included, uh, intended to be worshipped. Yeah. We'll work on that a little bit okay. more. It's an All interesting right. Put it in the stack. Really, really Thanks, concerned. 2031, for yeah. bringing it to our attention. Dwight says, we can drink, but what we drink is important, not alcohol. Uh, we agree with that, Dwight. Thank you. So, again, we have to make sure that what we're doing falls within the parameters of God's word and the instructions that he's given us. Nothing that we do can contradict what God has said. And when he is specified, that excludes other options. Um, and so we've got to make sure, back to what uh, 2936, I think, asked, or 9456, no, 2031. Uh, is it just church things? No, it's all things. Uh, is the instruction that we have to yeah. have authority. Okay. All right. Time for our bullet point. And when we get back, we've got a question go a from faster. John on yeah. the Lord's Supper. When is it uh, to be partaken? Is yeah. it just on Sunday? Oh, uh, what do you think? How do you determine that we should just partake of the Lord's Supper on Sunday, that other days are prohibited? Get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. There's a popular denominational doctrine called once saved, always saved. It's also known as the impossibility of apostasy or the perseverance of the saints. The Westminster Confession describes it this way. Quote, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Unquote. 
This doctrine is not supported by what is taught in God's word. Notice some simple scriptures. Galatians 5, verse 4. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Notice that this verse shows that some that were in God's grace could fall from his grace. How can this scripture be harmonized with the statement of the Westminster Confession? Again, quote, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confession steadfast to the end. That's Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14. This passage is addressed to, quote, brethren, and they are warned about the possibility of, quote, departing from the living God and about being, quote, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Their salvation was conditional upon holding, quote, the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And here's another one, quote, for if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. That's Second Peter 2, verses 20 through 22. Observe those who are described in this text. People who had, quote, escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord. These people were saved. But notice that they could be, quote, entangled again and, quote, overcome. And that latter state would be worse than before they had ever known the Lord. Clearly, they could be lost after having been saved. More Bible verses are available on this subject, but just these three passages make it clear that once saved, always saved is not taught in the Word of God. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hey, Mommy. Hunter Hold. Um, this is the virtual Bible study. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. Thanks. We're back on the program tonight, and we uh, want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us, how we worship, where we worship, and when we worship at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And uh, you contact us anytime at questions at collegeview.com for your bumper sticker if you want to help get the word out there. And those bumper stickers are seen, by the way. We uh, have uh, seen uh, evidence of that in uh, recent times. Those bumper stickers uh, are at questions at collegeview.com. Your questions about uh, Bible topics, questions at collegeview.com. Your questions or comments about something, something you've heard us say on the virtual Bible study, questions at collegeview.com. Or why not just send us an email and tell us you're out there, where you're listening from. Uh, we'd love to, to know that you're out there. Questions at collegeview.com. We rarely hear from folks who just stop in to say hello. And we'd yeah, love to hear from you if you just want to tell us that where you're at, where you are, and that you're listening. As a quick summary to our last question about music, we forgot to read what Kent in Georgia wrote in about that. He said, there's no authority for the usage of mechanical instruments of music in conjunction with the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Such would be wrong in or out of the assembly of the church. These particular songs were designed for worship to God and our edification as Christians. Thus, when individuals add an unauthorized element, they end up with a contaminated product. We also need to be very careful in not taking those songs uh, designed for worship and edification and turning them into acts of entertainment. Such defeats the purpose of singing in a spiritual context. Insofar as the secular is concerned, songs that are non-spiritual, therefore not suited for worship and devotion to God, we obviously need to take care not to engage in activity that would promote worldliness or immorality. However, just because a song is within itself secular does not make it wrong. There are some secular songs that do not violate principles of ethics, morality, and good taste. Obviously, it would not be proper to introduce them in the worship of God in the assembly of the church or in private devotional worship. However, such would not be wrong in their proper context. Regarding acceptable secular songs, there is no New Testament principle that mitigates against the usage of mechanical instruments of music in acceptable secular activity. And I think that's an important statement there. And uh, we're talking about uh, um, uh, specific authority here uh, where God would have specified uh, how we we are to engage in our... And, And Kent's way of wording that, there's no... New Testament principle that mitigates against those things. Yes, and, uh, and, and any number really of any number of things we might yeah. be engaged in. Where's your, yeah. your authority for that? Right, right. Well, there's no specific authority, but we're we're authorized to wear modest apparel. Yeah, uh, and so in areas where we are generally authorized to act, we can use our discretion. 
Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. All right. We got to move on quickly. We may talk more yeah, about let's that. Try and, catch that later. and by the way, those of you in the chat room, and it, uh, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied we did not answer that to everyone's satisfaction. Yeah, send that question in, in in detailed form, and we'll try to deal with it in a, in a future episode. All right. Thank you for your comments in the chat room. See that we, we told you this program is better when we get listener participation. We've got proof positive tonight. All right, so you're not done yet, chat room. We've still got about 30 minutes to go for more of your help. Okay, the next question, next couple of questions come from John, and they have to do with the Lord's Supper. He said, I would like to have a narrow focus on when the Lord's Supper is to be observed. For this question, I'm not concerned about how, where, or for what purpose, but just when. Okay, so that's, that's good. Great specificity in what he's asking about. My first question is, if Acts 20, verse 7 was not in the Bible, where else would you go to say the Lord's Supper can only be taken on Sunday? I do not think there is another verse, but I would like for you to show me if there is. All right, so John identifies Acts 20, verse 7, which we've talked about a number of times in the past. Uh, Paul, on his final missionary journey in Acts 20, verse 7, uh, it says, verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, came to them in Troas in five days, where we abode seven days, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. All right, we talk about Acts 20, verse 7, as being our authority in regards to when and with what frequency to take the Lord's Supper. Now, one of the ways that we establish New Testament authority is by approved, sometimes we say approved apostolic example, and that is what this is especially. We have Paul, an inspired apostle, meeting with Christians on the first day of the week, Sunday, to observe the Lord's Supper. All right. So would we be right in imitating that example? Well, yeah. It's an approved apostolic example, right? So we would be we would be doing the right thing to do as they did under the with with the participation of the inspired apostle Paul to take the Lord's Supper on Sunday. Now, the question is, where else would we go to find the day of the week specified on which to take the Lord's Supper? It's not mentioned anywhere else. This is the only place where we have that day identified. Yeah. So we could do it on that day and have Bible authority for doing it on Sunday. Mm -hmm. We'd have authority for it because Paul did it with the Christians at Troas in Acts 20, verse 7. Yep. Someone says, let's do it on Tuesday. Okay, let's do it on Tuesday. Show me the verse that says that that, that gives us the authority to do it on Tuesday. Either command, example, or necessary inference for a Tuesday observance of the Lord's. I can't find it. So I can't do it on Tuesday. I can't really do it on any day of the week other than Sunday and be able to produce authority for doing it on that day, yep. right? And so this verse establishes that for us. Now, the question that John asks is, is, where's another verse that tells us that? I don't have another verse. I don't have another verse. How many verses do I have to have to establish yeah. authority is the question I would ask in return. I, this clearly establishes authority for a Sunday observance of the Lord's Supper, where else would I go to find another day authorized? This this clearly does authorize Sunday. How many more times does it have to be authorized? Yeah, I think I know where John is going with his argument, but I, I, I would caution that any time we have to say, well, if that wasn't in the Bible, how would you prove it? That does That's not sound reasoning. But he goes on in his second part well, of the question. Well, hang on just yeah. a minute. I, I want to give one other verse that is sort of a back door endorsement of the Sunday meeting of Christians, yes, a special Sunday. First right. Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, is not about the Lord's Supper. This is about taking up a collection, but it also identifies a day when they came together. And First Corinthians 16, now verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And and so that that sort of in the back doorway confirms that they were, they were coming together, together on, the on, on the first day of the week. Uh, but again, in answer to the question is, there are no other there are no other scriptures that specify the day. But but my main question would be, how many verses would we need to satisfy? 
I think one is, I mean, if it's clear and obvious as this verse is, this this clearly establishes uh, Paul coming together with the Christians on the first day of the week to break bread. Now, we're going to talk about that breaking of bread in a minute. All right. The other thing about that verse is it also by, so we have approved example there of the day. And we have necessary, we have an implication from which we draw a necessary inference that it was a regular weekly observance because it doesn't say it was the first Sunday of the month or the first Sunday of the spring quarter. And so when it doesn't say it was a specific Sunday, the the implication from which we draw the inference is that this was something they did every Sunday. And so both the day and the frequency are found authorized in Acts 20, verse 7. Now, guest 2031 asks, can we participate or can we partake on Thursday, the day our Lord instituted it? No. No, because he didn't tell what. When he instituted it, he didn't tell what day to do it on. We we get that information from the inspired apostles actually putting his teaching into practice. Okay. Jesus told us what to do when he instituted us, but he didn't tell us what day to do it on. Okay. And so in the church, when we see the inspired, under the guidance of inspired apostles, we see them observing the Lord's Supper. We see them doing it on the first day of the week. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, so they sinned that day, 2031 ask. It wasn't in the, Obviously, no. It, was, it, it wasn't in the church. The gospel wasn't even in force yet. Uh when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The gospel didn't begin to be preached until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And in the church where we are today, the practice was to observe it on the first day of the week. No, they did not sin. Jesus was showing them what to do. And the information which came by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the inspired apostles was that 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 act should be done in the church on the first day of the week. Okay. All right, 877-381-4567. Love to hear from you on the phone. Questions at collegeview.com. All right, there's a second part uh, to this question. Okay, so John went on to ask, my second question is, is it possible that in Acts 20 this was a fellowship meal for Paul since he was leaving the next day or was or was it a church worship service? In other words, the question is, was this just a coming together for a, a, a common meal, just a sort of a... a, a just like we do, you know, we we like to get together. Going away party. Going go away party. That would be a way to put it. Was this that or was it a worship service? Logic dictates that if the first question is answered nowhere. That's if, if it wasn't some other place other than 20 verse, Acts 20 verse So if, if Acts 27 is where we, we go to find the day, logic dictates if the question is answered nowhere else. In other words, and we agree, there's nowhere else in the New Testament to find the day to observe the Lord's Supper. Then you would have to say you're 100% certain that this was a worship service in Acts 20, verse 7, and the breaking of bread was the Lord's Supper. He goes on to say, I cannot say this 100% sure. I believe it is very possible the saints got together with Paul for a send-off meal and, and to hear additional things he had to say. All right, so so I think, and I accept what John says. I think logic demands us to be consistent. We have to be able to say with 100% certainty, since Acts 20, verse 7 constitutes what I think is the only authority we have for the day to take the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. then logic demands that we have to be able to say that we're absolutely certain that the, that what they did there in Acts 20, verse 7 is to observe the Lord's Supper. Think of a first consideration is to know that this expression "breaking of bread" is used both ways in the New Testament. It's used uh, of the Lord's Supper, and I think we we see that going back to the very beginning of the church in Acts chapter two. In Acts chapter two, uh, it says, verse forty-two: These new Christians in Jerusalem continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I think that there's the expression breaking of bread and in prayers. So there I think he's talking about what they did in worship to God. But just a few verses later, verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. There the breaking of bread, verse 46, I think is their common eating of meals. So within just a couple of verses, it's used in both ways. So contextually, we have to decide 
how is it being used in a specific verse? And so going to Acts 20, verse 7, the question is, can we be sure that it says upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, can we make sure that that breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper? And I think the answer to that is yes. And the reason why I would say it's yes, no, is that it, was, it involved the church coming together. The disciples came together for this purpose. And Paul was there, and Paul participated in that freely and openly, thus giving his inspired endorsement to the action. It was apostolic example. If this was just a common meal, then Paul would have been violating, been violating his own principle that he stated in 1 Corinthians 11, in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 20, Paul's condemning the church at Corinth. He says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, the gist of that statement is it should have been. When they came together as the church in one place, it should have been to eat the Lord's Supper. But they weren't doing it. He says, for in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So here the church at Corinth was coming together as the church to eat a common meal. And Paul condemned that condemned them for that uh, he says finally in that same context first corinthians 11 verse 34 if any man hunger let him eat at home that you come not together unto condemnation so my my conclusion putting those passages together is if acts 20 verse 7 was the church coming together for a common meal just a send-off dinner for paul then Paul was violating his own principle that he stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, if that's the case, then we've got an apostle contradicting himself in word and action. And, and we don't, that, that is actually a conclusion we cannot abide because then that leaves us in full doubt as to what part of the apostle's conduct can we accept or reject. Now, that's not to say apostles didn't sin. For instance, in Galatians 2, Paul points out how Peter sinned, but his sin is exposed and explained and condemned. Paul's actions in Acts 20 are never exposed or condemned. We have to assume it's approved, an approved apostolic example. And therefore, in order for it to be an approved apostolic example, it can't be the church coming together for a common meal because Paul himself as an apostle condemned that sort of activity. Therefore, we are forced to the conclusion that it was a coming together to observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, let's read Kent's uh, response. Regarding the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six states, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, that particular expression does not specifically state how often, for as often as is. However, the context of, this, of the chapter indicates that such was in the worship assembly. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2 indicates the first day of the week assembly of the church. In conjunction with these passages, Acts 20, verse 7 states that the church at Troas came together on the first day of the week to break bread, a phrase that is used regarding observance of the Lord's Supper. A conjunction of 1 Corinthians 11, 26, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, and Acts 20, verse 7 teaches that Christians are to assemble themselves together on the first day of the week, every first day of the week, and during the worship assembly partake of the Lord's Supper. There is no New Testament authority to observe the Lord's Supper on any other day of the week. In Acts 20, verse 11, the text indicates that Paul broke bread. That is, he partook of food in a common meal. Compare that with Acts 20, verse 7. In verse 11, we note that Paul individually partook of a common meal, but in verse 7, the church collectively broke bread in partaking of the Lord's Supper. How do we know that verse 11 deals with a common meal and verse 7 deals with the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians 11, 17-30 makes a distinction between common meals and worship in the Lord's Supper. The purpose of the church assembling together is not to eat a common meal. The purpose of the assembly in 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 20 was for the church collectively to eat the Lord's Supper. I agree, Ken. Thank I you for think that, you're Ken. right. All right, now we need to clean up a few things that we said, um, or some questions, I guess, that we have here. Um, 9456 says, what the gospel was not enforced. That's in reference to your question, your statement about uh, the that Lord's Supper. That is correct. That is correct. The gospel was not enforced. That is correct. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the gospel was not in force. It was not in force until Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. And 2031 says, I suppose this raises another bigger question. What of what Jesus did is actually exemplary for us? It sounds like nothing since everything we read about Jesus on earth is before Pentecost. 
Well, that's not exactly true either, because uh, in Luke uh, in Luke sixteen uh, verse. 16, Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Jesus was teaching principles of the kingdom. The kingdom wasn't established yet, but he was teaching principles of the kingdom. Right. And so the principle that he set forth in establishing the Lord's Supper is what we do. He said, and, and, and when Paul repeated that in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. In other words, Paul's recounting what Jesus commanded them to do. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't give instruction as to when to do it, but he told them what to do. Uh, and in John chapter 14, verse 16 excuse me, John 14, verse 26, Jesus said, The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you. So the the Holy Spirit would remind them of what he had taught and teach them more things. Jesus said in John 16, verse 12, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. Yeah. So this, so Jesus didn't teach them everything while he was still here. He, he admitted that he didn't teach them everything. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he says he will guide you into all the truth. And he will remind you what I told you, and he'll guide you into all truth. Should we follow Jesus' example? Obviously, we should. But to your point about the institution of the Lord's Supper, he was instructing them on how to partake of the Lord's Supper, not on when. One way we understand that is because they were taking this Lord's Supper in the context of a common meal, of the Passover meal. And if we were to do the same today, we'd fall in the condemnation of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So he's establishing the principle of the Lord's Supper on what it is and how to partake of it. But we're not following the example of when in the circumstances that they partook of it by other passages that uh, would mandate that that to be the case. I think that's right. All right, if there's other questions or comments about that, again, send them to questions at collegeu.com. Maybe we left some things open there. Uh, I think we forgo our last break here because we're not anywhere close to getting done with these questions. Okay. Uh, and we may not get done. Maybe no, we I don't should, think Why don't we... You want to save Chris's couple of questions for the next time and, and just catch... The yeah, line. let's do that. Let's do that. Well, okay, sorry, we got, Chris. We've we got Chris in Atlanta who sent in a couple of really good questions, and I, I'm really particularly interested in a conversation. I, I, I'll give a tease here, Jacob. One of them is about common law marriage. Yeah. If a cu- He asks, if a couple is recognized by the state as having a common law marriage, are they considered to be in a scriptural marriage? That's an interesting question. I think there's quite a bit okay. involved in Okay, that. so let's do a challenge to our listeners. If you can fill up our inbox with other questions, and I will do another listener question uh, yeah, program yeah. next week. And I've got that? some already, so let's do, let's, we're going to keep Chris's, right. and if we can get a couple more and good so questions. Those in the chat room have things that we want to tidy up or some more things you've got questions about what we said tonight, send those to questions at collegeu.com. 2031 says the inconsistencies are mind-boggling. I'm going to need to sign off now. Apologies, gentlemen. 2031, uh, please send us an email. Let's uh, let's continue to have the discussion. We don't want to be inconsistent. If you think we are, we want uh, to hear from you on that. So send us an email to questions at collegeu.com. Thanks for being here tonight, 2031. All right, now to Dwight. Okay, so Dwight asked, and again, Chris, hang tight. We'll try to get to you just hopefully next week. But we're gonna, you got a couple great questions. We're gonna we're gonna hold yours over. And we'll go to the last one that was in the list that we sent out earlier today from Dwight. He says, if I'm to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, can I worship at a church of Christ that is liberal, is the, uh, is the label he assigns? He says, I believe we should plan our trips and where we're going to worship God. I think my first observation about that is that Dwight points out what we are freely willing to admit, and that is that there are... There are churches of Christ that that wear that name that we don't think are practicing pure New Testament Christianity. Yeah. But, and so, uh, just just the name on the on the building, so to speak, or the name on the sign out by the highway, does not establish the fact that this church is actually carefully following the Bible in all that they do say and practice. That's right. Uh, and and so Dwight says, and he would call those churches, and I and I certainly use this terminology too. Those churches are liberal. That is, they're they're loose about uh, the application of Bible authority, basically. 
And he says, should we, could, can we worship there? And he, he's, I think he's, because he goes on to say he wants to plan his trips to include where he's going to worship. So he's not talking about worshiping at such a place on, on an ongoing basis, but just, I'm, I'm on a trip. Should I worship there? Uh, first, I, I'm going to say I agree completely with this last statement. I believe we should plan our trips and where we're going to worship God. I absolutely agree to that. If, if, if I can't, if I can't plan my trip itinerary to get me places where I can worship with brethren that I, in good faith, assume are practicing yep. pure religion, then yep. I should re, I should rethink my itinerary. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's put God first in our in our vacation for crying out loud. I mean, it's, it's, you're you're at liberty to do what you want to on your vacation, it's vacation on your free after time. All. Put God first in that. Make sure you're going to be able to find a, a sound church to worship with. Now, you just said a mouthful right there. How do I know? That's exactly right. How do I know this particular congregation? So, well, there's certain, there's certain uh, investigations that I can do in a pretty simple way. You know, the internet has actually made that a lot easier. Yeah. You know, but, so here's here's this church in Outer Timbuktu. That's where I'm going to be next Sunday. They actually have a website, and I go on their website, and it, in just a couple of minutes, I can see. Oh, there's some things they're doing that you know that I I, I just couldn't agree with. You know, because they're advertising it on their website. Yeah. And so I say, well, that doesn't sound like the place I need to be. On the, or on the other hand, I look at their website and everything that I can see, at least by by quick investigation, sounds, seems to be pretty good. Then then you know I might choose to go or not go to that place based upon some information I garner from what they're putting out there on the World Wide Web. But I tell you, there's no way I can know everything about a congregation. Absolutely not. I, and and the fact that I stop to worship with a con- a given congregation, I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do my due diligence and try to find a, uh, a group of Christians that are tr- at least trying hard to follow the New Testament pattern. But there's no way on earth that I could make that investigation thoroughly yeah. like I would if I was living in that community and thinking about identifying as a member of that congregation. So some, I mean, to some extent, uh, we're limited in, in how much we can know. Yes, absolutely. And, their worship when I go to worship with them. Their worship may be right. They may be worshiping right, but they may be doing things that are unscriptural that outside of their worship that uh, I may not know about. Have I committed sin? I need to do my due diligence, as you said. Uh, and uh, But by, wor- by visiting at a congregation, I'm not in lending my approval to what they're doing if, they, if, I, if, hap- if I happen to f- stumble into a place that's not uh, following the scriptural pattern. Some things are obvious. For instance, we talked earlier tonight about instrumental music. Yep. If they've got instrumental music, I know that's not the place I need and to worship. And if I walk, walk in and they're worshiping with instrumental music, I'm not going to stay because I w- I'm not going to participate in that worship. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, let's say that, that, that maybe the preacher or the elders take a view on divorce and remarriage, for instance, that if I knew about it, I wouldn't agree with them. I don't even know what they teach about that. What it, and I'm not endorsing what they teach right. about that by, by, by simply being there on a given Sunday. Right. So there's, there's some limitations, and, and, but I, I, I wholeheartedly agree uh, with what Dwight says. We ought to be planning our trips. We actually got an email from Mohan up in Chicago on this question. Thank you for your email, Mohan. He Good said, I would you. not recommend a liberal church of Christ that has a broader plan of salvation from what is in the Bible. If an organization that calls itself a church is off on salvation and those things clear in Scripture, that is serious and we cannot have fellowship trips. It's good to plan ahead. And if there's no sound church of Christ in the area of our trip, I would not stay at that trip location where I would miss more than one Sunday. Thank you, Mohan, for your email. And Kent says we definitely need to plan our traveling and assemble with brethren that are doing their best to be faithful to the Lord. That we seek congregations that are perfect. There are none, he says. However, we need to seek local churches that respect the pattern of the New Testament and seek Bible authority in all things. And, and, and again, we just make a good faith effort, but we can't be perfect in those determinations. Absolutely not. All right. Uh, Dwight says, as you find churches and you find out about them worshiping wrong, don't go back and take time to maybe teach them. Okay, I think that's right. Sometimes, we, some, and I've been in that shape, and I imagine oh, lots yeah. of travelers have been. You get to a place and you end up, whoops, 
I've made a bad choice here. This is not the place I want. Well, at least I learned from that mistake and don't go back there again. And maybe take some time, as Dwight says, to talk to them uh, about uh, what you believe the Scriptures teach. Thank you for those comments, Dwight. All right, uh, we are out of time. An excellent discussion tonight. Remember, the challenge for the listeners is fill up your inbox with questions so we can do this again next week. Yeah, sounds good. And those who disagree with something we said in the, in the pro, uh, program tonight or have questions or want us to clarify more about what we said, send those emails to questions at College View so we can address those uh, concerns. Kyle, thanks for being here tonight. It's always good to be here. Thank you for, Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. And uh, did we miss any of your comments tonight, Kyle? No, absolutely not. Uh, I, I didn't look in your direction. I'm sorry about <laughs> that. Uh, thank you for uh, being a part of the program tonight. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word, and we hope you make plans to be back at this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.